Hi, it's Amanda. The lineup for the 2023 Portland Book Festival has just been announced. The festival takes place Saturday, November 4th in downtown Portland. For more information about the author lineup, schedule, and how to get your passes, visit pdxbookfest.org. See you there. Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host from Literary Arts, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature novelist Barbara Kingsolver. Her latest novel is Demon Copperhead, which won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction, making her the first author to win twice. Kingsolver will be back in Portland to discuss Demon Copperhead on October 17th, 2023. More info at literary-arts.org. This episode features Kingsolver in an interview with Literary Arts Executive Director Andrew Proctor, which was part of the 2012-13 season of Portland Arts and Lectures. The occasion for Kingsolver's visit was the publication of a long-awaited novel, Flight Behavior, the follow-up to The Lacuna. Kingsolver is perhaps best known for her novel, The Poisonwood Bible, which many critics and readers consider a masterpiece. In this interview, Kingsolver discusses her most recent book, but she also looks back at previous books and at her craft over the span of her career and how it relates to the political or social issues that are her themes. Kingsolver is a writer who embraces so-called, quote, political art and who rejects the idea that, by definition, it is a lesser form. This, quote, divorce, as she calls it in this conversation, between art and the issues, is artificial and distinctly American. And it's a divorce that can leave American artists dangerously on the sidelines of some of the most important political and social arguments of the day. Here is Barbara Kingsolver with Literary Arts Executive Director Andrew Proctor. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Andrew Proctor. I'm the Executive Director of Literary Arts. Um, Over the years, we've asked our audiences what authors they most would like to see on this stage. Our guest tonight has been by far the most requested, and because of your persistence, she's here tonight. Barbara Kingsolver has said, a career is built one paragraph at a time. I wrote six books and a blue million articles before anything of mine hit the bestseller lists. I don't know any shortcuts. Kingsolver didn't start out to be a novelist. She worked as an archaeologist, a copy editor, an x-ray technician, and a translator of medical documents. She wrote her first novel, The Bean Trees, when she suffered from insomnia when pregnant with her first child. Every book she's published since 1993 has been on the New York Times bestseller list. Kingsolver said, in a novel, you get to say important things even though you're lying all the time. When she was awarded a Distinguished Achievement Award by the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the chair of the selection committee said, Barbara Kingsolver leaves the reader with a sense of urgency about the topic she cares for most, the complex nature of what it takes to live together peacefully and creatively. Asked to comment on an element of her autobiography and her fiction, she says, does my fiction reflect my worldview? Probably but I haven't done a fraction of the things my characters have done, such as running from the law, adopting an abused child, being an expert cockfighter, having Alzheimer's, 
being a gay man, being a straight man, being a child of Christian missionaries, or cooking for Diego Rivera. Do I seem that energetic to you? <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Barbara Kingsolver. Thank you for requesting me so much. <laughs> I'm really um, excited and happy to have seen a tiny, uh, or not a tiny, result of the Writers in the Schools program and happy to have donated half my honorarium to that wonderful program. The other half, I'm really happy to donate to Green Empowerment. I have... Um, a, a special connection, a historical connection, and a personal one to green empowerment. In the late 80s, I wrote a novel called Animal Dreams that was inspired by uh, a brigade of young people from the United States who went to give their best work um, and their best enthusiasm to the fledgling progressive democracy of Nicaragua, in spite of the fact that the United States government at that same time was arming and supporting um, um, opposition meant to overthrow that government. Um, it was an army that was um, very violent against the citizens of Nicaragua. And um, one of those, um, I was, especially inspired by um, a young engineer from Portland named Ben Linder, who lost his life and was killed by the Contras. This is a small, um, dark piece of US history that many people have forgotten, but the family of Ben Linder will never forget because he lost his life. And um, I, um, wanted to dedicate Animal Dreams to him, but because I had never met him, that seemed, I, f I felt I needed permission from the Linder family, so I contacted them. And um, since the day that I first spoke with Elizabeth Linder, Ben's mother, we have been friends. Um, I've been so glad to see Ben's memory grow into the monument that is Green Empowerment. It sounds like a lot of you know Green Empowerment already, but if you don't, it is a Portland-based nonprofit that brings clean water and electricity to villages throughout the developing world using only renewable and sustainable technologies. That was Ben's uh, passion. And it has grown and done good work for 25 years. And if you'd like to know more about it, you can check out greenempowerment.org. So I hope that you'll do that. You have another local connection, I think. And that is uh, our friend and yours, Ursula Le Guin. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about your, because you told me an interesting story about Ursula. And, and the way you first got really engaged with her in a serious way around the prize, I think. Yes, when I was first trying to figure out how to invent a prize, um, the Bellwether Prize for socially engaged fiction, of course I didn't, I didn't know how to do that. And I um, 
asked for help um, from anyone that I thought might know more than I did about it, which was everybody. But um, in particular, I looked to writers who inspired me because they wrote the kind of fiction that I was hoping to um, reward in its earliest stages because this is a career founding event. It goes to an unpublished novel, so it, it becomes the first published novel of someone who's trying, who's working, um, not just trying, but succeeding um, in writing socially engaged fiction. So the first round of judges, um, when I sort of assembled my dream team uh, of of great writers of socially engaged fiction, I thought of Ursula, and she agreed to be a judge. And she helped me to um, really hammer out a definition of what we were looking for. Um, and I really appreciated that. And do you feel that, that I mean, I'm assuming that the reason you started that prize is partly because you felt that that sort of format was sort of undervalued in some way in the publish by the publishing community or by readers, or was that the sort of impetus for that? Undervalued by basically the United States of America, um, to put it in general terms. It just seemed, um, <laughs> it seems so strange to me that everywhere else in the world that I know of, people look to their artists to be arbiters of, of um, social justice, to be um, sort of leaders in thinking about not just the world as it is, but the world that it could be. In, uh, you know, in Poland, in Latin America, people uh, elect their poets to public office. So it really discouraged, has always discouraged me that in the United States we um, don't seem to share that attitude. Um, or if we do, we are supposed to keep quiet about it almost. There's, um, it seemed to me that art and politics kind of got a divorce here in the, in the 1950s. And I actually even wrote a book about that, but that's another story. <laughs> you didn't ask that question. So, um, It'd be fine if we went there, though. But um, sure, and probably we will. Yeah. But, um, but it seemed to me we, it would be good to create a prize that that really said, you don't have to be ashamed of this, you can be really proud of this, that would bring some cachet to this kind of literature. So when, um, I mean, it wasn't always since I was little my goal to have a writing prize, that wasn't uh, how that came about, but it really, it came about when I reached the point in my career that I had more money than, um, than I needed to support my family. Um, and I have a really low maintenance family, um, so would that they was, say that as well? Oh, they would. <laughs> yeah, they would. They would agree. Um, so that was after uh, when I got kind of a big fat old advance for the Poisonwood Bible. I thought this is this. I need to do something good with this. And what struck me as possibly good would be to create a prize to make people um, more excited about socially engaged fiction. So it's, it's to encourage the publishing community, the writing community, and the reading, readers too. Um, and it's a big prize. It's, uh, it's $25,000 and publication. That's 
you know, in the scheme of things, a lot of prizes, have, you know, have a lot of cachet, but not a lot of cash. Um, right. It's true. So this one right. does. I mean, it's meant to really change somebody's sustaining. life yeah. and, and encourage them to write more of that kind of work. Well, we were lucky to have Heidi DeRoe, of course, here, who won the Bellwether Prize. And she's a Portlander, and she was here for the Everybody Reads event last year. So I think, um, I think a lot of people read that novel here in Portland. Yeah. 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 So we were going to talk a little bit tonight about Flight Behavior, which is Barbara's new novel. It's a magnificent novel. I had such, Thank it was you. such a pleasure to read it. I felt so fortunate to get this in the mail before all of you did. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, sorry. You I probably got yours before I did. I, meant, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's possible. I should talk to your publisher about that then. Um, but I wanted to ask you to read just one. Uh, we picked out a little pa a page here, and I, I'm going to flip to it because this is my copy. Okay. Um, it's a really wonderful passage. Maybe you want to set it up just a little bit, but... I don't really even need to set it up. You'll just have to guess what's going on. Um, it's, f it's from the first chapter. Um, and Well, okay, I'll set it up with one sentence. Uh, young woman at the end of her rope. This sounds like <laughs> as the world turns. Um, <laughs> I, it's much better than that, I promise you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> A young woman at the end of her rope is... Uh, fed up with her life on a stultifying farm uh, with her disapproving in-laws, is marching up a wooded hillside in southern Appalachia um, to a, an assignation. She's going to meet a man, and, and she's contemplating having an affair uh, that will wreck her marriage. Um, halfway up, she's stopped by a, an amazing sight. A small shift between cloud and sun altered the daylight, and the whole landscape intensified, brightening before her eyes. The forest blazed with its own internal flame. Jesus, she said, not calling for help. She and Jesus weren't that close. But putting her voice in the world because nothing else present made sense. The sun slipped out by another degree, passing its warmth across the land, and the mountain seemed to explode with light. Brightness of a new intensity moved up the valley in a rippling wave, like the disturbed surface of a lake. Every bough glowed with an orange blaze. Jesus God, she said again. No words came to her that seemed sane. Trees turned to fire. A burning bush, Moses came to mind, and Ezekiel, words from scripture that occupied a certain space in her brain, but no longer carried honest weight, if they ever had. Burning coals of fire went up and down among the living creatures. The flame now appeared to lift from individual treetops in showers of orange sparks, exploding the way a pine log does in a campfire when it's poked. The sparks spiraled upward in swirls like funnel clouds, twisters of brightness against gray sky. In broad daylight with no comprehension, she watched. From the tops of the funnels, the sparks lifted high and sailed out undirected above the dark forest. A forest fire, if that's what it was, would roar. 
This consternation swept the mountain in perfect silence. The air above remained cold and clear. No smoke, no crackling howl. She stopped breathing for a second and closed her eyes to listen, but heard nothing. Only a faint patter like rain on leaves. Not fire, she thought, but her eyes when opened could only tell her fire. This place is burning. They said, get out of here. Up or down, she was unsure. She eyed the dark uncertainty of the trail and the uncrossable breach of the valley. It was all the same everywhere, every tree aglow. That's so beautiful. So um, at BEA, when you launched the book in June, there's a great quote where you're talking about the creation of work. And you say, I always come into a novel with a big question. And my job is, when I go into this question, to sort out what is really new about our modern dilemma and what part of it's been true forever. And when you put both parts together, that's a novel. And I wondered if you could tell me what makes flight behavior a novel. What's timeless about it is that it is about frustration. It is about um, person, uh, a person who feels that there should be more to life than uh, life has allowed her to taste. Uh, it's about the difficulties of the difficulty of speaking to people who are different from you, uh, the divides between urban and rural, the divides between more and less educated. It's about class. It's about hope. It's about all of those things that have always been with us. And what's new about it is that it's about climate change. That's never been written. It's, it's not historically the subject of fiction. I think probably what a lot of readers in this room respond to most passionately about your work is this, this creation of these characters. And there are a lot of big issues that come up in many of your novels, and this one is climate change. And I guess I was rereading your books this summer, and I was kind of totally struck by the idea that I identified immediately with most of your narrators, with the characters who are the primary characters, with them, even though they were dr like dramatically different people than I was. The Lacuna is narrated by a gay man 80 years ago. Um, uh, the narrative flight behavior is in a young, uneducated woman um, living in the South on a farm, which is obviously just like me. But, but, um, but in fact, you know, I, you read, and, and so there are these tremendously, you know, really sort of literally earth-shattering ideas being funneled through these characters. And can you talk a little bit about creating characters that that are once so specific and also so, um, like sort of universal? I mean, how do you go into creating these narrators? Well. With uh, one, uh, what would you say, one one paragraph at a time? <laughs> yeah. um, but you're right. The key is empathy, and that's um, I, I'm sort of avoiding the question initially by saying um, thank you for noticing. It's uh, it's the best thing about literature that it puts you inside of a life of someone that you've never been and that you'll never be. That's what it does that's so special that no other kind of writing, no other kind of entertainment, not film, not journalism, uh, only story does that. So I'm still avoiding the question. Um, 
Um, but I guess I'm saying how you do it is first you commit to it because that's the crucial part. I want to pull you into a life. So um, I have to have absolute sympathy for um, not only that main character, but really everyone in a novel. That's, um, it's, an, it's an interesting predicament uh, as a novelist. You have to love your villains. At least you have to understand them. You have to know what it's like to be them. And you have to know that from the inside, they think they're right. They think they're the good guys. Everybody in your novel thinks they're the good guys. I mean, basically. So how do you do that? If you're, if you're standing back, if you're judging, it's, it's going to be flat. Um, so ultimately, you know, the way they behave will reveal themselves, but you have to be able to uh, um, absolutely identify with people who are very different, um, you know, from, from myself. And um, one way I do that is I imagine that they're, I'm their mother, right? <laughs> because, you know, every, even, you know, criminals, even, um, I don't know, Fox News broad, broadcasters and everybody. Every, <laughs> I mean, they all have mothers somewhere, I mean, they right. all have yeah, mothers right. somewhere, right. you know, and, right. and they're, they're just thinking... <laughs> He means well. I know he does. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's sort of a starting point, right. and then you immerse yourself. And and uh, I you know I, I would say that there aren't I, I don't find villains in your in your work to be honest. I mean I don't know that I've ever found a villain in your work in the true sort of cardboardy sense. The characters are I mean in faith, in in flight behavior, I mean all the characters are totally flawed in really specific ways. And so I wonder, like, in the creation, do you, do you find yourself like, oh, this narrator's too perfect, I need to find a flaw. Like, how does that emerge for you? How do characters emerge as fully rounded, sort of, you know, damaged human beings that we sort of all are? Well, first I figure out what they have to do, uh, because that's m my m mode of writing is very, it's kind of scientific, um, Maybe because I was, you know, I was trained as a scientist. Maybe that's just way I, what I think, how I think. But I start with this big question, as you mentioned, something that seems important that um, that I want you to think about. And so then I construct a narrative, this sort of narrative. Um, um, I was going to say bridge, but it's not really. It, it's more like a, like a house of cards initially, but it's a it's a house. Um, it's a revelation. I figure out a storyline that will reveal what I want you to think about. Then I populate it, so I'm like central casting. But better than that, I get to you know I pull them out of my brain. So I start with what they have to do. I see how they're, I'm going to plug them into my story. And then I back up and give them um, the right life histories, the, light, or the right families, the mother that I mentioned who thinks that they're doing their best. Um, and are you oh, writing all that stuff out beforehand? And just I like, am. this is just all what ends up on the cutting room oh, floor, I, essentially. Right. Thank goodness there's no cutting room anymore. It's just the delete key, you know. And <laughs> oh, I lean, I lean into that thing, you know. <laughs> Lean heavily on your delete key. That's my best advice to young writers. Um, <laughs> it used to be keeping a giant trash can by your bed, by not your bed. Why did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll let it go. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe that too. That's another interview. Um, 
Um, <laughs> I think this was the icebreak moment, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> We've been on stage for yeah. five minutes, Bob. I really... <laughs> um, to keep, it used to, my advice used to be keep a giant trash can beside your writing desk because you should write a lot more that doesn't end up in the book than, than does. But now, you know, the wonderful delete key um, uh, makes it just disappear. So archivists of the future will never know <laughs> how bad your first drafts were. Um, it's, it's, I'm gleeful about this. Um, and sometimes I imagine those delete, deleted words in a, a cloud, you know, like hanging, <laughs> like, I don't know, like pig pins, dirt, you know, or something. All the stuff that I wrote that was imperfect. But anyway, I've strayed from your question. No. Um, uh, but it seems to be working. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so, really, so this idea of, your novels have constructed. They are constructed. Right. Oh, yeah, now I remember. How do you get them so flawed? Well, um... <laughs> Well, as I said, I pull them out of my brain and um, then back up and give them histories. And I, I, I back up specifically and give them damage. Sometimes I feel like I'm a therapist in reverse because... <laughs> because you're damaging people, because right? Because I'm, yeah, I'm seeing the, the, sometimes they have to do bad things or dumb things right. or, you know, to, to, for the revelation. And so... Um, you know, you have to back up and think, what kind of childhood, you know, what kind of unrequited love, or what, you know, what kind of damage would render a person um, able to behave this way? It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so at some point, presumably, the voice begins to take over because your, fi your, your fiction is full of voice. Thank so, you. So, yeah, and really beautifully so. I mean, the Poisonwood Bible is probably the most potent example of that kind of, of because of the fugue-like quality construction of it, but... At some point, presumably, this sort of the, 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 the labor must give way to sort of something more. It just has to, I think. When I read it, I can't imagine that it doesn't feel constructed at all. Oh, it's all hard every day, uh -huh. Andrew. All of it. It never gets easy. Right. <laughs> no. Um, but, it, well, you're right. The voice does kind of kick in. Um, but it, it, it does... Um, it, it does remain difficult. I always think of the metaphor of the ballerina who looks like she's levitating on stage, but actually her feet are bleeding. You know, that's mm -hmm. the... Um, it is work, but you don't want your work to show. But um, you're right. Once I do the construction of a character and know, you know, who they are, and I've written all of this stuff and deleted half of it about their background, then... Finding, finding voice is one of the first great uh, fun projects of, of the literary novel because um, you keep writing stuff, you keep writing scenes, you keep writing narration, and you don't hear it yet. You're still working at it. And then one day it comes in through your ear instead of in through your hands. I, at least that's how it is for me. I start to hear the voice of the novel. And it's not even necessarily a person's voice, but it's, yeah, the voice of the novel. And that's like, you know, wind in your sails. Then, I keep saying you, as if, you know, as if you're doing this. Um, I'm trying to distract attention from myself. But um, um, that's how it is for me. When, I, when I'm getting to that, uh, that beautiful day when I can just sit in my chair and start hearing the voice in somewhere in here. 
um, then, then it's a go. I mean, it's not, you know, it's far from done, but I feel sure that I can do the, I can do this. And that, because that's where you're, this is, you can write this novel. That's the moment. Yeah. Yeah. One of the moments, um, I keep having them until the day that I send it to my editor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never sure because I always set out to do something impossible. That's always that's that's always my starting point with a novel, which mm-hmm. I know seems ridiculous, but it makes it so exciting. You know, if mm-hmm. you don't know that you can do this, you have to keep showing up. Right. Well, and can we? I mean, so we talked about voice, and so flight behavior, in some ways, in terms of its construction, in terms of the way the narrative is sort of built as an arc, resembles probably more sort of the classic literary novel, structure, social realism, um, and some of your earlier work. So I would compare it closer to sort of a cycle of novels that begins with the bean trees and goes through pigs in heaven and onwards up until about the Poisonwood Bible and then boom, the Poisonwood Bible seems to happen, at least from a reader's perspective. And that novel... Just happened. Yeah, just happened. No, I mean, but from a construction point of view, it's a dramatic shift, right? The novel's got five voices. It's a fragmented narrative. So when you're beginning to create a novel, and poison, um, excuse me, Prodigal Summer 2 has a, has, a, has a fragmented narrative, the lacuna is a fragmented narrative in that it's mostly a, a diary entries, but not entirely either, actually. When you're beginning to sort of the architecture of a novel, is that, I mean, you did say you built that house of cards. How specific is that house of cards when you begin? Is there a real, like, I know I'm going to do five narrators, or I know I'm going to do a really straight ahead sort of third-person narration? That is part of the construction, although it can change. And I'll give you a specific example. I knew the Poisonwood Bible would be told in kind of a spectrum of voices because the question I was asking, um, the very large question about what one country has done to another, um, I knew I would show that in an allegory, both against the back a historical backdrop of the Congo in 1961 and also sort of revealed uh, domestically in this family whose relationships echoed this uh, this sort of pattern of arrogance. And my question really was not, did it happen? Because, you know, well, duh, it happened. But um, how do we feel about it? We who weren't a party to that great and terrible historical um, 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 event... Um, that that pillage of of one country of another's uh, hope, democracy, and resources. I wasn't there. I didn't do that, and yet I've profited from it. So just by living in the United States, we are enriched by our exploitation of of Africa and many other countries. So how do we live with it? That was the big question, and I knew there wasn't one answer. I knew there was. A spectrum of an- answers from being paralyzed with guilt to being um, carefree uh, and sort of there was a spiritual answer there was a more kind of activist answer and so I started out knowing as a part of the construction that I was going to have these different people tell the same story from different points of view and so I thought there would be I knew that the mother would be sort of the the um, the voice in hindsight um, and then that these daughters would be really the true narrators and I started with three of them and then I realized after you know I was almost through the first draft and I realized 
I needed another voice. So one of the characters, I split into twins. It was very, see, this is what's great about <laughs> pulling them out of your head. It's just absolute power. And, um, and so, you know, that was sort of this autocratic decision I made, okay, twins. But then that leads to more nuanced decisions about, okay, you know, even plot decisions. So if they're twins, why are they so different? Oh, I know, one of them, you know, difficult birth, one of them damaged, you know, so you can, see, damage. That's the, that's what I do all day. Um, you thought I was a nice person. Um, they'll never have me back here. Um, so... It, it becomes this um, synergistic process because while I, I know essentially where I'm headed, these th things come up along the way that become very, uh, you know, very exciting and, and rich with, with possibility, both literary and symbolic possibility and, um, uh, you know, just entertaining. Like, I don't know, let's make twins. <laughs> <laughs> Magical. So, and so... So in the lacuna, I also had this really complex, had a complex, not this complex, but a complex construction. Was was there a deliberate thought in your mind, like, no, I really want to write a novel that's sort of, you know, more sort of simple in its construction, or or is this just how this novel emerged? Well, again, it had to do with theme because in when I I, I, as I thought about the lacuna for years and years before I really knew how to go about it. I mean, I think the lacuna started way back in the early days when the first, uh, um, maybe not my first novel, but the first novel of mine that anybody really uh, much noticed, um, uh, the first time I you know, answered questions from, from journalists, um, the first question they asked me was, isn't this political? And um, they sort of never stopped asking that, which just baffled me. Um, I never got over being baffled and um, and interested in the fact that political art seems edgy or frightening to um, to to the arbiters of what's what's good literature. So all along, I thought I gotta I gotta answer that properly, you know, instead of just saying I don't know, it might be, you know. I thought there must be a better answer. And I've ended up being like 600 pages long. Um, but I really wanted to do that. I wanted to uh, um, really invest myself in that part of history when that happened. Learn how it happened myself, because I didn't know how the McCarthy era happened. And I, again, I backed up. Um, and so I figured out how to get into the story by saying, uh, by, by, uh, imagining the missing pieces of history. It's all about, it's about the, the lost passages. Um, I didn't know for a long time that it was going to be named the lacuna. That was, that's another that's a story actually. It kind of came at the 11th hour, but it had a really, hor all my, my novels usually start with horrible titles and, um, because they're file cabinets, and that one was called Notes to a Future Historian, because... Um, well, and, and the Poison one was the Damn Africa book, The right? Damn Africa book, right. yeah, that was... Right. Yeah. That is like, because that's famous now, I think. You wrote about that in, 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 the, in the, I think, one of the newspapers, I mean, the Times or yeah, something. I, yeah. I, yeah, because I d it was just, I didn't want to write it, but it was just accumulating there. <laughs> and 
Um, yeah, sort of in a file cabinet. And likewise, this this um, this McCarthy era book. It was just I was thinking of it as notes to a future historian. I had the idea that it would be a document that had been lost and would be found uh, much later, uh, because it just seemed to me all about the the things that have been hidden from the pieces of the past that have been forgotten, lost, put away, um, secreted. So really early in the process, I had the idea that it would be the diaries of this young man who had um, sort of lived this um, story of unbearable loss because of his political associations. He would lose everything, his his reputation, his name, maybe his life, um, but that nobody would remember him and that there would be a secretary who was, you know, keeping all these notes um, um, and would you know that it would be, and so that structure of the story was integral to the to the plot and the architecture from the beginning but then as i um as i got into it i had the idea as i thought more about that character of Harrison Shepard who would be keeping a diary i wanted to make him an invisible person somehow i even though you would he would matter a lot to you as the reader i wanted to convey to you in an unusual way that he even from the beginning he 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 thought he saw himself as as invisible he wanted to disappear and then i figured out eventually partly that's well cuz he had a bad mother you see the theme of damage a mother who ignored him and um although she was really colorful and interesting but didn't he you know made it clear that he was in the way and that and he is gay in a time when gay men could not really exist and so I early on thought, I had the idea of his diaries never using the personal pronoun, the first person pronoun. 300 so, pages. And that's it never gets, right. The I never gets used. Try writing a diary that never says I did anything. Um, and I thought, when I thought of that, I, I, I liked the idea because it would be, um, it would go to character it would really reveal how he is and it would also it'd be interesting it has never been done before as far as i know and um um it would also avoid um the problem the sort of sappy dear diary kind of tone that i really wanted to avoid um so i set out to do something impossible because you just can't do that. And um, as I was um, abundantly told by people who um, read my first drafts, um, they, people, you know, in my household, my husband's my first reader, and uh, I have a sort of a cadre of, of close friends who read early drafts. And this wasn't by any means a whole novel. It was just the first chapters of it I was trying to do in this voice. And... Um, so I'd give it to people, and they would say, oh, this is really interesting, but <laughs> he just needs to say I, you know? <laughs> <He> just... <laughs> right. right. And, um, well, it's so unnatural. Right. It was really hard to do. And so um, I could give in and write less of a novel than I wanted to write, which I wasn't going to do, or I could stop showing people my drafts. And, <laughs> um, right. Right. And, and in fact... 
<laughs> I did that because I was, I mean, for, uh, for years. I didn't, this was weird. This had never happened in my household before. Usually, especially my husband reads everything that, you know, sort of the pages as they come out of the printer. Um, but it, it wasn't working. I wasn't getting, I mean, at, a, at, at, an, at some point in your career, you know, I mean, as you go along, in the beginning, you should pretty much listen to everybody. If they say, you know, this sucks, then you should listen. But... Um, <laughs> because it does, but um, <laughs> you get to a point where you have to remember uh, being an author is about authority. You have to claim authority over your material and your process. And I had this vision of something that had, okay, had never been done before, but I really wanted to do it. That was part of the point, to write a book that's never been written before. Um, so it's kind of like you're training for a marathon and all your friends keep saying, oh, take a break, you know? Right. Why, are you put, why are you doing this hard thing? So you, um, uh, you just, you know, you go train somewhere else where they can't watch you. And um, <laughs> so I did keep this uh, manuscript completely to myself for an unprecedented number of years. I had never done this before, and it got more and more terrifying because after a couple of years, and, and I will say that after a while, just like um, every other novel, when I, I, for, for months I pushed and pushed at this voice, and it felt unnatural, and it felt difficult, and then the ballerina started to levitate. Um, then... I would go to my desk and I would just hear how this boy would write in his journal without ever revealing himself. It just start, and I started just thinking in that language, and it just it just started to grow on the page. So I was excited about it, but still not ready to show it to my husband or anyone. And so when I finally fin I finished a complete draft, and um, um, had to. Just, Pull, pull on my big girl boots and uh, go to my husband and say, okay, I'm ready for you to read this. Um, and I won't watch, you know. And so um, <laughs> I was kind of lurking around the house. <laughs> is he reading it? Oh, what page is he on now? You know, sort of like pretending to be nonchalant. Um, <laughs> and he kept telling me to go away. Um, it's not many of us uh, can lurk in our own houses. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was really I, because I was so afraid that I had invested. I mean, I knew at this point, if it still wasn't working, I was sunk. Um, I, I, this was going to be a complete failure. I mean, I didn't. I really didn't think I could go back and fix this if this device didn't work. And so I. Um, Succeeded in sort of inching my way into the room as he was getting near the end. It's a long manuscript, you know. It was I was lurking for days, and um, it, we, it, we, I noticed he stayed up really late at night to finish it. That was a good sign, and it was it was really late. I was like, you know, I don't know, late at our house, midnight, and um, he was in the living room, and I was knitting, you know, and <laughs> completely uninterested, and. Uh, I mean, by this point, his campaign to get me to leave the room was pretty much a lost cause. Yeah. And uh, I looked over, and he was, you know, like one page left. And then a T 
tear ran down his face. And I jumped up and screamed and said, yes, yes, yes. Oh, honey, did it work? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I got him. I got him. And um, that made me really happy. And so... Um, because my husband, he's a really great first reader because he's not generally a fiction reader. Hmm. He reads my fiction, you better believe. But um, <laughs> we are, after all, married. But um, he doesn't read a lot of fiction and never has. So I, I, he's, he's not going to work harder than average to make a novel work even though it's mine do you know what i mean mm -hmm. he i mean it has to if it if it pulls him in if it works for him i know that um i've got something and then more um there are you know sort of more particular readers uh who will give me insights on you know, on other things but he's a great place to start you know uh as a reader and and, and many other reasons too but um so that but that was um that was immensely validating because the, I knew if the basic uh, sort of fabric was was workable, then I could take the nips and tucks I needed and, you know, continued to work on it for another maybe six months. And my editor, Terry, and many other people weighed in. Um, but that was an unusual experience. And so when you sort of shift gears after that and go to a novel that is, I mean, it just seems like, the, the constructing of that novel was an, an incredibly stressful. You know, going to something that's that's more kind of, I mean, I don't want to say comma is not the right term, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it's it's fiction you've written before. The construction of this novel, did that feel like kind of an enormous relief to have a novel that kind of didn't have a complicated structure, or did you miss that process? Well, it was it was a relief that it wasn't a failure. Um, but um, I know what you mean. I do. I, I definitely pace myself in a certain way when I finish when I finish a novel um then and then then I you know no no good book goes unpunished then you have to go out in the world and you know talk about it infinitely um and this is not punishment you know <laughs> just kidding about that but um um uh, see I'm aware i they liked me when I came on the stage, and it's only going to go downhill from there. <laughs> I should never have come. <laughs> um, um, there is a way in which I also want to do something, okay, hard because I've never done it before, but very different from the last book. So I think that's what you were getting at. The lacuna was a long time in the writing for several reasons. One is that it was that very difficult um, narrative experiment. Also because it involved re reading the history of the Mexican Revolution, parts 7, 8, 9, and 10, and um, lots and lots of other research. Some of the research was fun, going to Mexico, climbing, you know, going to Teotihuacan and going to Trotsky's house and going through the archives of Frida's house. And, you know, I really enjoyed a lot of that, but a lot of the research that you do, um, especially library and archival research would be categorized in many quarters as boring. Um, um, I think it's not boring to me. Oh, and reading a lot, a lot of newspapers, because that book also, another thing that I used in that 
um, to sort of anchor that book to history was I used actual newspaper articles from from the time. So I, from you know the those passages of history, partly because it was so unbelievable what this country did, the way this country turned on its own citizens. Um, um, it was unbelievable, and I didn't want. I mean, it's it's, it's odd because you are inventing. I mean, it is fiction, but it was about stuff that I did not make up. And so I didn't want the novel to be dismissed as extreme or hyperbole or some sort of exaggeration of the way this country became phobic of communism. Well, it became phobic of any kind of dissent, any kind, um, uh, on the base, uh, discontent about race relations, gender, anything was labeled communist. And um, it was just horrifying um, the reputations that were wrecked, the, um, the damage that has really yet to be undone. My fear was that it would be, as I say, dismissed as exaggeration. So I thought, how can I make it believable? There is this period of talking about the novel and framing the novel and explaining the novel and stuff, and then there is the the, the very um, wonderful day when I get back to my desk to begin the next project, and I want the next book always to be harder than the last one. I, I just I want to grow. I want to push myself, and there is something thrilling about setting out parameters that seem undoable. It's um, it's just exciting because what if you could? That was Barbara Kingsolver, who spoke with Andrew Proctor in front of a live audience at Portland Arts and Lectures at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in downtown Portland on November 16th, 2012. Barbara Kingsolver will be back in Portland at the Keller Auditorium on October 17th, 2023 discussing Demon Copperhead, her Pulitzer Prize-winning retelling of David Copperfield set in her home of rural Appalachia. More info at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.